But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Please pray with me. Dear God, we ask you this morning, as we always do, to be here with us in this place, and we trust that you are here in our midst. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The other day, the Religion News Service published an article with one of the greatest headlines of all time. Here it is. This is a real headline in a real news publication. Quote, a $100 million ad campaign wants to fix Jesus' image. His followers remain a problem. I could not love that more. Jesus' image is tarnished, but with $100 million, it might be fixed. You and me, not so much. We remain a problem. What was it that uh, Gandhi was reported to have said? I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Same idea, right? Jesus is great. It's all of us Jesus followers who are ruining everything. Now, we'll see how this new ad campaign, which is supposed to culminate in an ad during the Super Bowl, we'll see how this campaign goes about fixing Jesus' image. But I've got some bad news. We Christians are going to keep being unlike our Christ. In fact, that's what we've gathered here to celebrate this morning. We've come to celebrate the fact that our Savior is utterly unlike us. Now, to be sure, we believe in the incarnation in which Jesus became one of us, human like us, but the differences are profound. We are sinners. He is righteous. We are dead. He has defeated death. We need saving. He has accomplished it. It's actually good news that he is unlike us, because it means that he can save us. And this is our cry at baptism, isn't it? That's what we're shouting today. We are not like you, Lord. You are holy, we are not, and we need you to bridge that gap. That's what the parents and Godparents who will bring these kids forward are saying that's what our adult candidate is saying too. And if we were to put specific words to their cry, it might be something like the tax collector's cry from Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And to be sure, this is not just our cry at baptism. It's our cry every single week. In fact, it becomes our cry at baptism and every single week of the year because it's the tortured cry of every broken sinner in the history of the world. All of creation, we read, is groaning under the weight of sin. And everyone with eyes to see and ears to hear 
calls out for salvation. Two men, Jesus said, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, if you've spent any percentage of your life in church, you've probably heard this story a dozen times. And you've heard stories that make this same point a thousand times. It's really hard not to just sort of roll your eyes and do one of these, right? Come on. <laughs> Move it along. Jacob probably wasn't even halfway through the first sentence before you got super bored, right? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a... I mean, seriously, we get it, right? The Pharisee is a self-righteous jerk. The tax collector has a healthy awareness of his sin and his need for a savior. Don't be the Pharisee. Be like the tax collector. Can we move on to something a little more advanced, please? But wait. Take a moment. Look closer. And you'll see that this is not a morality tale. Encouraging us to be better than this Pharisee. This is a story about how true spiritual maturity is about the realization that God alone saves, about having eyes to see and ears to hear, about knowing the truth that God creates faith, sustains it, and brings it to fruition, that God, as Hebrews says, is the creator and the perfecter of our faith. Indeed, it's about knowing that we Christians are unlike our Christ. And if we can see that, we'll see that what we're celebrating this morning at baptism is really what we celebrate every single week. And indeed, every moment of our Christian lives, the miraculous defeat of death and the gift of resurrection life, God's unmerited saving work for sinners. So I want to challenge for you the traditional interpretation of this story this morning that the Pharisee is a self-righteous jerk and the tax collector just has a healthy awareness of his sin and his need for a savior because I'm not sure the Pharisee is a self-righteous jerk. What does he actually say? He starts off really well, right? God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. He's not a self-righteous jerk. He just thinks that he's doing pretty well. That he's a spiritually mature Christian person. Or a Jew, in fact. He thanks God for his spiritual maturity. For his improvement. He sees the good gifts that God has given him. He sees how far he's come, and he thanks the Lord. He thinks that with God's help, he's doing okay. 
Surely that's not so bad, is it? Well, listen, the Pharisee's problem is that he's got spiritual maturity completely backward, right? He thinks that he has progressed beyond this tax collector. See, in the Pharisee's conception of spiritual maturity, and many other people's too, the path of Christian growth is like climbing a mountain. Not an impossible mountain like Everest, but something like Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, which is, I'm told, I would never do it, but I'm told that it's just a really hard, long walk. That anybody with the proper sort of work up to it and the proper equipment can do it. Maybe we Christians don't need to lift weights or eat properly or find the right hiking boots. But we have the equivalent, don't we? We could climb this mountain of faith. We need to spend some devotional time with God, perhaps in prayer or fasting. We need to read God's word in the scriptures. We need to give of our financial resources to aid the ministry of the church. A mature Christian sounds a lot like this Pharisee. But we know better. We're not going to make the same mistake this Pharisee made, are we? No, no. We're too smart for that. Remember, don't be like the Pharisee. But do you see, when we say don't be like the Pharisee, what we've done? We've just put ourselves two pews over from the Pharisee. He's looking over and judging the tax collector. So he doesn't see us looking over and judging him. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Fundamentalists, Christians from those other kinds of churches, or even this Pharisee. I keep my improvement to myself. Or in other words, I'm ready to acknowledge that I need more help. With even more help from God, I'm doing okay. But spiritual maturity, Christian growth, are not like this. And in truth, Christian growth is not like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. It's more like descending into Mammoth Cave, shining a light into all the nooks and crannies that are full of spiders and gross worms with no eyes and those horrifying insects with a thousand legs. This is what Christian growth is about. It's descending into the tomb. It's about recognizing how like the tax collector you still are. Jesus enters the catacombs of our hearts and shines the light of truth into all the corners of sin that we don't even want to acknowledge to ourselves, much less to other people. No, no, thank you, Jesus, we say. Stay out of there. But Jesus says, I have come to redeem even that. Even that place that you won't show anyone, even yourself. Spiritual maturity isn't about getting better and better, seeing fewer and fewer people around you in the pews who can measure up to the standard you're setting. Spiritual maturity is about the light of Christ shining ever deeper into darker and more unexplored corners of your sinful heart. Christian growth comes from being reminded once again, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, just how much and how desperately you need Jesus. In other words, how dead you are 
and how desperately you need to be raised. This is the fundamental distinction between the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee is thankful for how good he has gotten. The tax collector acknowledges that without a savior, he is dead. And resurrection is just what we've come to celebrate this morning at baptism. At baptism, we are acknowledging that on our own, we are dead. A baptismal service is not a service at which we outfit these new Christians with their spiritual hiking boots, their spiritual energy bars, and their spiritual map, and then send them out to climb the mountain. No. Those things, the boots, the energy bars, and the map, those things are acquired as a result of what we're doing here. What we're doing here is crying out to God to raise someone from the dead. We don't take one step, even one motion toward the beginning of a journey without acknowledging that on our own, we are utterly lost. We're offering those dark, as yet unexplored caverns of their hearts and ours to the God in whom there is no darkness at all. And we're doing the same for ourselves this morning. Whether you come up here and get water on yourself or not, that is what we are doing. We all have more darkness to give over to Christ. Further unexplored dark caverns of our hearts. We're asking him already in the case of the infants who will come up this morning and for us again and again to redeem, to save. And we're celebrating that in Christ, he has done just that. And we ask that same mercy for ourselves. The true shape of Christian growth is captured perfectly by Robert Lowry's classic hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. He writes, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is in vain. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. This is Christian maturity. This is a new life in Christ. The Christian life, the life into which we are inaugurating these people today, the Christian life is an ever-growing acknowledgement of how much we need Jesus every hour, every moment. But this acknowledgement of death and need is not the end of the story. It's not even the climax of the story. It's all well and good for the tax collector and for us to admit our crippling need and to refuse like he does in our unworthiness to even look up to heaven. But that can't be the end. That's not good news. If, for instance, when we say the prayer of humble access during our communion service in a few minutes, if we stopped right after saying, we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table, if we stopped there, I wouldn't blame you for walking out. We're not worthy is not good news. We can't stop there and praise the Lord. We never stop there. Listen to what we will pray. We do not presume to come to this thy table 
We do not presume to approach you, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but, but, thou art the same Lord whose property, whose character is always to have mercy. This is why the tax collector goes home justified. Not because he's so adept at beating himself up, but because God actually answers his tortured cry. The man says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God says, I will. God says to him and sinners everywhere, in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, I will have mercy on you. God says, I sent my son to live for sinners like you, to die for sinners like you, and to be raised again for sinners like you, like you. This is the good news of God and Christ. You, who were dead in trespasses and sins, are now alive in him. Put under the water of baptism, ending that life in which you would have needed to save yourself. And now raised up out of the water, you are made new. And now, I have good news for Gandhi. Now, by a miracle, you actually are made new. And you Christians will begin to become like your Christ. So it is for those we will baptize here this morning, and so it is for each one of us who take this opportunity to remember our baptisms. Because what God commands us to do in obedience to him is given to new creations as a gift. It is in and because of their redemption that they, these children, and we will begin to do the things that God calls us to do. Spending time with the Lord in prayer and fasting, immersing ourselves in Scripture, giving of our financial resources to aid the ministry of the church. These things and others, myriad others, will happen. Both for those baptized today and for those of us who are already baptized. Christ-likeness is promised to us as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, Paul writes, have put on Christ. Galatians 3.27, these newly baptized will be outfitted for their life of faith. We will, all of us, new creations in him, be renewed. But that renovation comes as a result of God's work in our lives. A work that began before the foundation of the world that we are here celebrating this morning. The Christ-likeness that Gandhi couldn't see is actually given to the Christian as a gift. Indeed, it is in acknowledging that we are so unlike our Christ that we are given his righteousness. Our sinful slates are wiped clean. But then, but then, they are not left Blank, as though we just have another chance to get it right. That's not the situation that these candidates are going to find themselves in, and that's not your situation either. Washed clean, 
with a second chance to do better. That is not what this is about. Their slates and yours are now filled edge to edge with the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. His work for you. What does that look like? Holiness, sanctification, spiritual maturity, Christ's own righteousness given to you. All sourced, not in your faithfulness, but in God's. Not in your effort, but in His. Not in your work, but in Christ's. So at baptism, these candidates will call out or have their sponsors call out for them for God to have mercy on them. We who are already baptized will echo that call, remembering when we called out for the first time. And if you haven't been baptized, call out to God this morning, and then come on. Get baptized at the first opportunity. The word to you is the same as the word to all of us. You are a sinner. You are unlike your holy God. But your God's character is always to have mercy. God will hear your cry. The King of heaven, the Father of our Savior Jesus Christ, will answer you. This is God's word to you this morning, whoever you are. You are a sinner. I am a redeemer. I chose you before the foundation of the world. You are mine. He will adopt you on account of Christ, into his family. He will give you his goodness in exchange for your sin. And he will be with you and in you and for you always. Right now, today, and even to the end of the age. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Love Forgiveness, vast and boundless. Jesus Christ is our living water. Amen.